Hello and welcome to episode number 161 of Turkey Book Talk. Thank you for listening. I'm William Armstrong here in Istanbul. In this episode, we hear from Daniel Joseph MacArthur-Seal, Assistant Director of the British Institute at Ankara and the author of Britain's Levantine Empire, 1914-1923, published by Oxford University Press. The book examines the rise and decline of British military rule in the urban East Mediterranean, particularly through the testimony of British servicemen sent to occupy Istanbul, Thessaloniki, Alexandria and elsewhere in the region amid the collapse of Ottoman authority immediately after the First World War. Our interview focuses mostly on the occupation of Istanbul from 1918 to the end of the Turkish War of Independence in 1923. For the book, Daniel trawled through the letters, diaries and memoirs of over 100 British servicemen, many of them never published before, to paint a vivid portrait of this period in Istanbul. The details of those years of occupation are often overlooked, both in Turkey and in the UK, and we talk about why that's the case later in the conversation. But before we get started, let me remind you, first of all, that our entire archive of episodes going right back to 2015 can be found over at turkeybooktalk.com. We're on Instagram as well now, just search for Turkey book talk podcast or one word you can support the podcast by becoming a turkey book talk member via patreon joining as a turkey book talk member gets you numerous extras including an exclusive discount of 35 percent off the price of all books published in ib taurus and bloomsbury's excellent turkey and ottoman history series Every one of the hundreds of Turkey Ottoman history titles published by IB Taurus Bloomsbury is available to Turkey Book Talk members at a 35% discount. Members get a special code to use at the online checkout and that deal is valid for all physical books, pre-orders and e-books. If you'd rather read these interviews to listen to them, then you're in luck because Turkey Book Talk members receive a PDF transcript of every interview via email as soon as the episode is published. You also get PDF transcripts of the entire archive of Turkey Book Talk interviews when you sign up, including many extras that have not previously been published on the podcast. Members also receive an archive of over 200 book reviews written by myself, ranging from Turkish and international fiction and poetry to history, politics and journalism related to the Middle East and Europe. And finally, I also send links to a couple of articles related to the subject of each episode in the email that I send out to members upon publication, which is obviously ideal if you want to delve a bit deeper. To become a member, just go to Turkey Book Talk's Patreon page and pledge $3, €3 or £2.50 per episode. If you're feeling particularly generous and want to pledge more, then of course you'll be more than welcome. But so long as you pledge $3, €3 or £2.50 or above per episode, membership is entirely at your own discretion. There are no prior commitments or strings attached. You'll be free to sign off whenever you want. But now on to our conversation with Daniel Joseph MacArthur Seal. I started by asking him how his interest was piqued how and when he first started researching the subject of British imperial behaviour in the region in this period. Yeah, well, I, I arrived at this kind of topic by a very indirect route. It was actually during my undergraduate uh, studies that I I chose a third year dissertation topic, which happened to be, I actually narrowed down on it, not geographically, but by chronology. I knew that I was interested in the 1920s and in British foreign policy. And I ended up working on British relations with Greece during the Greek-Turkish War or the Turkish War of Independence. And it was it was in researching that topic that I learned about the occupation of Istanbul. And I think that that highlights something that we'll probably talk about later, which is how unknown the Istanbul occupation is in the UK and in the other countries that were belligerents in that in the conflict with the Ottoman Empire, basically anywhere outside of Turkey itself and even to a degree within Turkey. 
anyway, I then decided to, to work on the occupation of Istanbul for my master's thesis. And then I expanded on that project in my, my PhD thesis. So my PhD thesis tried to compare the occupation of Istanbul with the British role in Thessaloniki, where there was a large concentration of British troops after 1915, and in Alexandria, where the British were already in place, but where the, the First World War kind of expanded and intensified their presence. And so I, I ended up kind of walking into uh, Ottoman studies or late, and the late Ottoman period via Greece, actually, and that's where I am now. Yeah. And then you dive uh, very deeply into uh, basically what the book is fundamentally based on which is really centered on the personal testimony of various soldiers and officials who you say constructed Britain's Levantine Empire. And these sources are very interesting because they are obviously very personal. They're very unofficial and they're the kind of experiences and opinions that were often uh, excluded from official reporting, official sources that are often the, the bread and butter of historical research. So um, you gather notes from, I think, over 100 soldiers, uh, sailors, officials in this part of the world, particularly in Istanbul. I just wonder if you could talk about, you know, why those sources are particularly interesting and a little bit about what distinguishes them really from official sources. Yeah, sure. Well, I think, you know, the first notable thing is it's just the existence and accessibility of these sources, which is very unusual. I mean, normally accessing personal testimony, especially like of people lower down the, the hierarchy is, is normally very difficult. And it's you know one of the main problems in social history. But because of the way that the First World War and the fact that the occupation of Istanbul is connected to the First World War, the way that that's been treated by archivists in the UK especially but in other belligerent countries too and the kind of level of popular interest led to led to the creation of these collections of of soldiers diaries and letters and memoirs and there are over yeah I found over a hundred for people who had been to Istanbul, Thessaloniki and Alexandria and those are kind of you know from the British perspective marginal fronts in this conflict so there are really thousands and thousands of these uh, individuals papers in museums and, and libraries in, in the UK. So that was something that, you know, struck me. And then the other reason why these sources is because, yeah, they provide a kind of a picture of British policy and British behaviours in this region that you don't always get from the official sources. And they also give you an idea of inputs into what was making British policy, why the British were acting in such a way in this place that you don't come across in official sources because official sources are obviously concerned with presenting the rationale for why the British are occupying Istanbul, for example. And they focus on, you know, this kind of concept of national interest. That was really the mentality of like, the Foreign Office at the time. But when you're reading kind of letters that were never intended to be read by, I don't know, an official, they might be a letter to a loved one or a, a completely private diary entry you come across all of these kind of influences and experiences that are otherwise not documented. And then basically working from those kind of personal sources, I come up with this model of, you know, why it was that the British acted in the way that they did. And to me, it makes more sense than than this kind of interest, national interest-led model, because the most notable thing about British policy, and especially in the post-war Ottoman Empire, was the degree to which it was a failure. In understanding why it failed, you kind of have to look for something like the irra irrational or the incoherence. 
and and in those official documents that are only presenting kind of logical explanations of why to, why do this and why do that you don't necessarily come across those alternative inputs and a big part of these sources are taken up with british occupying soldiers in istanbul in that period after the first world war and there's a chapter in the book about the kind of rhythm of their daily life their duties how they spent their leisure time what they were doing what they were thinking could you just talk about what are some of the themes that come through that material and what comes through particularly about these soldiers interactions with the local population yeah sure i mean i think that one of the reasons that the my reading of those soldiers diaries is 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 new is because like those sources are very well known but they've always been used to try and understand different questions like you know why did the british keep fighting on the western front when the conditions were so bad or it's normally used to kind of explain questions of like battlefield morale people haven't taken those sources and and asked the same questions i've asked although that is that is starting i'm not the only one doing that and there has been this increasing move to focus on like uh, especially the middle eastern theaters and other fronts by people who have been influenced by kind of like i was by the you know colonial history and using this rather than kind of coming from a military history background in order to understand those soldiers actions and their effects the first thing to note is that there was a lot of interaction going on especially in istanbul in the other in the wartime kind of cities there was a slightly more restrictions but in istanbul was kind of unique in the sense that the soldiers being that they were largely at peace are given more freedom to kind of go into the city especially officers um who were often like living in houses that would be in requisition from civilian population and so they were really like living in the heart of the city and so i think that the main argument that i make when i'm looking at the kind of off duty behavior and the leisure time of these of these soldiers is that that's one of the key moments in which the kind of reality of the british or the french or italian kind of imperialist presence in the city is is felt by the population and so you know one of the only other kind of ways into this topic of soldiers behaviors aside from the diaries of the soldiers themselves is to look at you know the memories and memoirs and the novels even that were written by especially by turkish inhabitants of the city and they often point to you know i found that when you're reading like you know halide edeb or other kind of ottoman turkish figures in the city they're often as offended by the kind of personal behavior of uh, british soldiers whether that's like you know you know the way that they get onto the tram in the city as they are by the kind of policy decision of i don't know taking frace away from the ottoman empire for example so it's like there's a the way in which those personal behaviors of soldiers sort of speak to the power imbalances in this post-war period and reverberate this kind of diplomatic level humiliation of the Ottoman Empire in defeat is i think the really interesting thing that is is revealed by those uh, letters and diaries and especially when read alongside the responses and reactions to them by locals are there any particularly colorful examples that um, particularly stand out in your memory or that you particularly think are illustrative of of the themes yeah well i mean let me think what i've been coming working on in more detail recently so one thing that comes to mind for example is that you know there are these let me just preface this by saying what's interesting about this example is that the british are kind of presenting this view of the eastern mediterranean city as this very unruly anarchic violent disorganized space right and then when you read into what these soldiers were actually doing in their kind of personal time 
the ironic thing, you know, is that it can be as anarchic and unruly and violent as British statesmen and officials and officers are castigating, castigating Istanbul for being. So the example would be, you know, the British, they impose this closing time on bars and places that serve alcohol in the city. Uh, and they enforce that. They find bars and they, they go around closing places down that break those rules. But the kind of paradox of this situation is that there's this question of kind of who polices the policeman. And in this colonial situation where British soldiers, as well as other allied soldiers, are above local law, when it's British soldiers who are breaking their own governments or rules, then, then no one can really stop them. So there's this incident, I think it's a gazino run by a guy called Manolis, and he complains how these British soldiers, they come in and they start drinking. And then it comes to the closing time, which has been set by the military authorities in the city. And he tries to, you know, kick them out of his bar, but they just, uh, you know, draw their bayonets and then they just help start helping themselves to the booze behind the bar. And they and they drink like, you know, hours after the time in which he should have, you know, according to these military authorities, should have closed up. So that's just a, an example. So at the same time. There's a complexity there, which is that, you know, these British soldiers are at once, you know, they are able to do behave the way that they behave because of this privilege and protection that they're granted by their status as occupiers. And yet they're using that to breach the rules that are set by the occupying armies. So you have this kind of tension going on where colonialism is at the same time enacted as it is disrupted by I don't know, lustful urges on the part of uh, soldiers. And, and that extends from in all areas, from bars, especially, but also interactions with local women and, and the role of soldiers in prostitution, which topic I've got uh, an article under review now, which kind of gives a much more extensive picture of, of that than, than what's provided in the, in the book. One of the other really interesting parts of the book is uh, how these soldiers confronted or tried to understand the very different Levantine world that they uh, encountered, and particularly from the, the perspective of the ethnic and religious and linguistic diversity of the society that they encountered. Very often they saw this as a kind of racial or national disorder, and they kind of took against it. And you paint a picture of these sources, these characters, these people trying to understand what they were coming across, but really not being able to do so, not having the mental maps, I suppose, to really properly digest what they were experiencing. And you say at one point, quote, the romanticism of some memoirs and histories that describe an idealized cosmopolitan past have obscured the verbal and violent physical expression of such antipathies. Such misleading nostalgia is but one of the dangers of cosmopolitanism's academic revival. Just wonder if you could talk about that theme and how it relates to the sources that you were looking at in this study. How were these soldiers that you were studying? How did they confront? How did they understand or not understand the massive diversity of Istanbul as they came across it in these years after the First World War? Yeah, I think that, you know, the quotation kind of summarizes uh, where I'm coming from here. Um, many people now have written, a, have kind of critiqued this cosmopolitan histories of, of the Eastern Mediterranean, which kind of presented a, an overly rosy picture of kind of communal harmony that was then, you know, smashed by nationalism. I think one of the things that's forgotten 
from that from that kind of picture is the degree to which Western voices were critical of this kind of diversity, let's say. I mean, we would call it multiculturalism now, but um, this diversity was really reviled against by, you know, 90% of the voices that I came across in my research. There were very few exceptions of people who actually celebrated this fact about the Ottoman Empire, one of them being E.M. Forster, you know, people who went on to become critics of kind of nationalism in the 20s and 30s. Most of these soldiers were basically horrified and aghast at the, the level of racial mixing that they saw in the city. And they really, that was kind of given as an explanation, in fact, for the whole collapse and decline of the Ottoman Empire from everything from, you know, why the police were corrupt to, you know, why the trams didn't run on time to why the Ottomans had lost the last war was, was explained through this lack of national feeling. I guess what's funny and to us uh, at the same time as being tragic, the degree to which those British voices uh, this, in this period were agreeing and echoing the same arguments of local nationalist figures, especially, you know, the, if you think of voices that you heard in the Ankara parliament at the time, they were almost echoing those of their, you know, so-called uh, opponents amongst the British in the sense that they saw this kind of malaise as being a result of this racial hybridity of a city like Istanbul. And another related issue is this question of refugees, because in this period, Istanbul was really a hub of refugees. There was a huge flow of people from various different areas coming through Istanbul, settling in Istanbul, leaving Istanbul. And you describe how these British occupiers who came in were really entering this human maelstrom that was marked by these refugee flows. One of the sources that you look at, Constantinople Today, which is, uh, as I understand it, some kind of journal at the time, estimated the city to have a refugee population of over 100,000 in 1921. And that included 65,000 Russians, obviously fleeing after the Russian Revolution, over 3,000 Armenians, 5,000 Greeks and 27,000 Turks passing through Istanbul from the outside as refugees. So how did the, the sources that you look at view all of this? Because that is another very particular aspect of Istanbul at this particular historical juncture. Yeah, actually, Constantinople today is um, is a book. It was like a survey published, a one-off, where those figures come from. But yeah, I mean, this was actually, I mean, not just in Istanbul, but across the whole of the former Ottoman Empire. Um, this was really a, a critical period in the formation of, of the way that the international law and humanitarian organizations deal with refugees. And, and plenty of my colleagues have written about it, especially in the context of the Arab provinces of the Ottoman Empire. You know, what's, what's interesting is that there are refugees coming from kind of all directions, often fleeing, fleeing from multiple parties. The most notable are these white Russians who have fled the Bolshevik Revolution. But amongst those, the allied authorities are still very concerned about the number of, of communists that might be among those Russian refugees. There are, as mentioned, yeah, large numbers of uh, Muslims coming from Thrace, which is just the latest part of the Ottomans kind of European territories to be occupied. And those refugees are kind of arriving in a city that is already a home to numerous refugees from previous conflicts like the Balkan Wars. And not just kind of outsiders, but even long-term residents of the city were displaced by the fact that there were these like numerous fires that burned down large amounts of housing. 
that housing situation was then exacerbated by the arrival of Allied soldiers who then billeted in, in homes of, of civilians. So there was this huge kind of economic and housing crisis because of this arrival of people. And then there was this desperate kind of search for ways in which the refugees could be supported. Um, and that involved like the League of Nations, it involved like the, these kind of attempts to redistribute the refugees. Um, so Russians were kind of sent all over the Balkans, but actually many of them even were sent back to the Soviet Union, the ones who were seen as not completely at risk. And then, you know, the end of the occupation, it's feared that there will be this even larger burst of refugees like into Europe from amongst the kind of Christian residents of the city, especially. And that actually ends up happening in a more slow motion than they've anticipated. But yeah, this kind of idea of Istanbul as this transitory place where refugees and also the kind of ideas, uh, political ideas or diseases or moral, uh, especially the immorality practiced by refugees is focused on by these British administrators in the city. And so it's really seen as the kind of point of containment, basically, you know, if this city is where these kind of flows need to be contained. And that is, I guess, ironically, you know, similar situation to how Istanbul or Turkey more broadly is seen by European leaders today. And you talked there about the immorality that was ob- observed, commented on. Uh, one of the aspects that's, uh, for obvious reasons, very little spoken or written about is how many of these allied forces who were occupying Istanbul, one of the key interactions that they had with the local population was through prostitution. And I wonder if you could say a word or two about that. You know, what, what do these sources reveal about that? Obviously, a lot of the people writing this stuff are writing in a private capacity, but they're still going to be pretty coy about this whole issue. But that was a, a key point of interaction, really, between many of the soldiers and many of the locals who they were interacting with. So what can we say about that? Yeah, you know, writing about prostitution as a historian is very fraught because, as you mentioned, it's something that both the kind of clients do not want to talk about. The women themselves, given their kind of social status and and the kind of semi-legal operation, uh, often hidden from the archive, in the archive. And so you end up really reading, you know, the only kind of perspective you can get on the topic is from these kind of morality campaigners or from the police forces that enforce the rules around prostitution themselves. The figures, they're not in the book, actually, but they will hopefully be in the article that I have on the topic coming out soon, which I was eventually able to find was like kind of use of what was called prophylactic uh, services by allied soldiers. Those figures, I can't remember them off the top of my head, give an indication of the scale of purchasing of sex that allied soldiers were kind of carrying out and and the degree to which it acted as a stimulus on the sex trade in the city. And again, this is one of those areas where there is this kind of, I suppose, hypocrisy or disconnect. The allied authorities are coming to the Ottoman Empire and kind of decrying Istanbul as this city of vice. But it's their own soldiers who are basically exacerbating this issue or or making it even more visible in the city streets. And then again, this again, like in many areas, the occupation acts as this kind of stimulus to this area, sex trade in this case, but it's true of many other things, theatre or entertainments. Uh, and then when it's withdrawn, there is this second disruption that takes place. Suddenly you have all of these women who can no longer make the same amount of money as they had been. And they end up getting thrown into disarray by the sudden withdrawal of the Allies um, in 1923. And it's it's the kind of picture that you keep see coming across in different areas of, culture, of cultural history in Istanbul in this period. 
Now, obviously, there was a very clear power dynamic at work here because these were soldiers who were occupying Istanbul at the time. Uh, you say in the book, quote, the aim of this book has been to show how between the beginning of the First World War in 1914 and the evacuation of Constantinople in 1923, the British military constructed a new imperium in the eastern Mediterranean. And that sense of um, power being exerted over the local population was actually a, an expression really of a much bigger imperial a dynamic that was at work, really, because uh, the Ottoman Empire during these years was basically collapsing. And obviously, the First World War, the Allies were seeking to occupy various parts of, uh, of, of the empire. Obviously, Istanbul was a target. That's what the Gallipoli campaign was about. And by the end of the war, that's what exactly what happened. The Allied forces moved in and uh, the Ottoman Empire was basically under the boot of these uh, Allied forces. So that seems to be obviously a contrast with the dynamic throughout the 19th century, because during the 19th century, the whole question, the Eastern question, as it became known, was basically the European powers looking at the Ottoman Empire and seeing in the Ottoman Empire basically a shared interest in propping it up because they were worried about the, the effects that a collapsing Ottoman Empire would actually have, the cascading effects that that would have on uh, global political balances, essentially. So it seems to me like that, that kind of macro story is there as a subtext, really, to all the stuff that you talk about in the book. And once it became clear that this collapse of the Ottoman Empire was underway, a kind of zero-sum logic took over and a very sharp-elbowed competition really began between various outside European powers. And that's what led to the uh, ultimately the, the occupation of Constantinople after the First World War. Just wonder if you could comment on that context, you know, is that a correct reading there? And is that the right context that we should be reading the micro level research that your book shows us? Yeah, I mean, there are different lenses you can apply to the kind of macro strategic pattern that's going on. Though obviously, the main reason that the British particularly were interested in, to the degree that they did intervene on behalf of the Ottoman Empire internationally, was because they were worried about Russian expansion through the Mediterranean. And of course, what happens just before the occupation of Istanbul is that Russia is, has its revolution and for a brief period doesn't appear to be a kind of strategic threat to the degree that it had been uh, in the pre-war period. And then that's kind of allows the Allies to make this much more, well, to kind of divide up the Ottoman Empire and get much more ambitious in the Ottoman Empire. When they, when they fear Russia again, as the Bolshevik forces defeat the white Russian armies and take, move into the Caucasus, that's when there is this kind of change of heart and people like Churchill are saying, look, we need to do a deal with the Turkish nationalists because otherwise uh, they'll end up in the hands of, of Moscow. So there is just this brief window in which, you know, Russia is not so much, not seen, not in need of counterbalancing through a stronger alliance with Turkey or the Ottoman Empire. But there is, I mean, aside from this kind of old imperialist land grabbing and resource grabbing, which is definitely going on, there is something new happening in this period too, which is, you know, on the one side, there's this kind of movement for international governance and idealism about how these questions of, of self-representation can be resolved. So there are various people, you know, and it's given serious consideration of whether Istanbul might be a a potential capital for the League of Nations, you know, because it's this international city and, and it could be administered by a kind of consortium of, of 
representatives of different powers rather than being given to one particular country or another. What I think that the, you know, the British for their part are most concerned with is control, but that's not necessarily territorial control. They basically want to ensure that, you know, that the Ottoman economy or the Turkish economy is open to them. They still have that kind of fear that, you know, they don't want this territory to be completely dominated by one power. And so that's why there is this kind of balancing of Greek and Italian and French and British interests in that goes into like the uh, Treaty of Sèvres, which is, you know, where the kind of territories of the Ottoman Empire are formally apportioned to the different powers. Yeah, I wonder if you could talk about that in a bit more detail, because you describe you know, Istanbul as the greatest prize of the war. But interestingly, it was one that the British were actually very divided on. So before 1914, Britain had been willing to fray Ottoman authority at the fringes, but it, you say, made no challenge to the fundamental edifice of the Sultan's rule in Constantinople. But from the moment that the Ottoman Empire joined the Central Powers in the First World War, Istanbul became the target of Allied war aims. But once the British and the other Allied powers were there occupying Istanbul, there was quite a degree of division and discord about what they were actually going to do. A reluctance, really, to get too deeply involved and exert the kind of authority that perhaps they could have done. Could you just talk about that? How is that reflected in the source that you looked at? Yeah, sure. No, there is this. There is a large degree of discord amongst the Allies, but not just amongst the Allies. Just to kind of give a caricature of the different positions, the French are, are supportive of, of maintaining more of Turkish territory, especially Turkish control of Istanbul, than the British. But even within the British cabinet, you know, quite amazingly, both the Prime Minister and the Foreign Minister at the time want Istanbul to be taken away from. Turkish sovereignty. Um, but they're basically overruled by the majority of the cabinet who are led in this kind of axis by the Secretary of State for India, who, who you know, Britain is very conscientious at the time of, you know, what effect depriving the Ottoman Sultan of his capital would have on Muslim opinion in India um, and in other British territories. So there is a, a extreme division on this, on the whole kind of course of post-war Turkey policy, and it ends up, in a sense, contributing to the fall of this coalition government during the Chanak crisis. What I'm more interested in, I suppose, in this book is, is looking at, you know, whilst there is this kind of indecision in London and in Paris at the different allied conferences over what to do with Istanbul, all the while there is the, the reality of this kind of imperial control is, is being constructed in the city and in comparable places around the eastern Mediterranean. So British legal consultants might kind of protest that, you know, the British are in occupation of Istanbul up until March 1920. But, you know, allied uh, marines are going around arresting people and or kicking people out of their homes to billet their houses or, um, you know, exerting pressure on Ottoman authorities to repair a bridge or to arrest a particular particular uh, nationalist figure, etc. So there is a kind of a vacuum of strategic decision making in this period, but it doesn't stop the reality of kind of imperial control being experienced by the population of this city. Now, I wonder if we could uh, bring the subject, bring the research up to the present day, really, because it has some contemporary re relevance, I think. But I think in both Turkey and the UK, some of these events are very little known, actually. 
And I wonder if we could start by talking about Turkey, actually, because Istanbul's occupation is obviously a very controversial period and one that is very little talked about. It's talked about in very symbolic ways, but the actual details of what happened and the details of why it happened and the aftermath are really not very well known at all. They're not discussed. We could speculate about why that's the case. Perhaps it shouldn't be surprising that these years are not emphasized in contrast to subsequent years. But just talk about that, how the occupation of Istanbul is remembered or not remembered in Turkey today. Particularly as you were doing the research, did you find anything particularly that um, made you rethink you know, how these years are understood in today's Turkey? Yeah, I think that it's it's been a subject of kind of fleeting interest. I noticed actually just a couple of months ago, walking through Taksim Square, that there was a kind of commemorative arch put up for the 6th of October anniversary, which was the date that the Turkish army entered back into Istanbul, for example. We've just seen recently the centenary of the occupation, um, and we'll soon see the centenary of the evacuation. There has been a kind of uptake in uh, Turkish works on the occupation, and those build on, I should mention, you know, two very substantial earlier works, one by Nurbilge Chris and, and one by Abdurrahman Bozkurt, which both looked at the occupation. But those perhaps didn't make a bigger public impact as they should have. And that's primarily because, you know, the focus of the Turkish study of this period is the War of Independence and the and the figure of Mustafa Kemal Ataturk. And actually, Ataturk did briefly experience, you know, occupied Istanbul from, you know, November uh, 1918 until he left for Samson in May 1919. But he never really was very himself. He didn't go into great detail about that period of his post-war career. And then, you know, the narrative of Turkish public instruction and um, of most kind of historical amateur historical interest is on on himself and the various fronts of the of the Turkish War of Independence in Anatolia. It could have featured much more heavily if the occupation had ended with um, a military invasion of Istanbul by the victorious Turkish forces, which is something that the Allies were very fearful would happen if the negotiations at Lausanne had broken down. But it was, in a sense, the kind of, their, let's say, in quotation marks, Allied diplomatic success of the way that they extracted themselves from the Ottoman Empire without too much of an immediate disruptive effect on the city of Istanbul itself that left the city somewhat in the shadows compared to, you know, what had been happening in the Aegean region of Turkey, for example. Another reason I think that this topic has been avoided or, or whispered about, and we've seen the kind of comparison, we can see comparable examples in European history, is that any place in which there is a, the taint of collaboration is often uh, ignored by, you know, historians who want to paint a more triumphal and victorious picture of, of their nation. So, you know, the fact that the Ottomans were basically collaborating very closely with the British and uh, the level of the authorities, the fact that many Ottoman nationals, albeit mostly Christians, but not exclusively, did welcome uh, Allied authority relative to that outgoing Unionist party was something that was kind of understandably, if unfortunately, suppressed or talked about in a very caricaturish way in which, you know, all of the kind of Christian residents of Istanbul are presented as this like fifth column who were allied with the allies in dividing the country, uh, which is equally unfortunate, perhaps as, uh, well, perhaps more unfortunate than forgetting the events in their entirety. 
And I think what I'm trying to do in my work, and I think what some of my colleagues are starting to do recently is, is look at what was going on in Istanbul without looking through this prism of oppressor and oppressed, without looking through this prism of kind of national resistance and imperialist aggression. And, and instead looking at, you know, what was going on in the social life of the city and the cultural life of the city under the stimulus of these foreign soldiers and during these kind of unique political circumstances. That's not to say that the dynamics of colonialism should be kind of ignored at all. And I think that, you know, what I'm trying to do in my book is both signal, you know, that there was something bigger going on here than just kind of oppression and but also to to just show how much the kind of cultural and social life of the city was impacted by the privileges that were conferred on the Allied soldiers by their position as the occup as occupiers. So it's a it's a rather difficult path to kind of tread. Yeah. And on the other hand, I wonder if we could talk about how these events, both in Istanbul with the occupation and also more broadly in the East Mediterranean around this period, how they're remembered or not remembered in the UK in the present day. Because uh, we were just talking earlier, you know, there's a real lack of knowledge, a real ignorance, you might say, about many of uh, these events. You know, people really don't know the British were, un were among the occupiers of Istanbul after the First World War for five years. There's very little, uh, very little understanding of the kind of power that Britain exerted over much of this part of the world. There's a real amnesia, essentially, about uh, the events and the period that you describe in, in your book. So we're talking about the relative amnesia in Turkey of, of these years. But uh, there's a different dynamic in, in the UK and amnesia perhaps for a different reason. Yeah, sure. One aspect of this is that, you know, the British had their fingers in so many pies, so to speak, that the fact that they forgot about their role in Istanbul is perhaps understandable, given that they were, you know, fighting a war in Ireland at the same time, that they were, you know, establishing their control in Palestine, which was much longer lasting and therefore has attracted more public interest. It's really, I think, one of the reasons that Istanbul, the Britain's role in the occupation of Istanbul is forgotten in the UK, and the same can be said about the French uh, role in France and the Italian role in Italy, is because Turkey, the Republic of Turkey, was successful in rebuilding its relationship with these powers on a friendly basis was relatively stable in the interwar period and subsequently and and that, therefore people weren't looking for a cause for the conflict or disruption that was was happening in the same way that they might have been when people look at what's happening in Palestine today they look back to you know what were the british doing there 50 years ago same can't be said, I suppose, uh, about Istanbul at this point. But there's, I suppose, and, uh, you know, there is a general kind of failing as well about the way that Britain's imperial history is taught in the UK, I think. And there is also a kind of sanctity, uh, which Turkish listeners will also, I'm sure, appreciate around the kind of soldiers, uh, especially in the First World War, where even if the kind of their commanders were seen as, as having made stupid decisions, soldiers themselves are seen as heroic and at the same time victims of, of these decision makers. And I think that the uncomfortable aspect of how soldiers abuse their positions of power in occupation is something that 
the British public are not 100% ready to to fully examine. And I think, you know, if you look at what's going on with these kind of trials of servicemen for crimes in Iraq and in Northern Ireland and the way the kind of level of public reaction that there's been to that, you can see why, you know, abuses of power by men in uniform has always been something that the public and politicians are very willing to forget. That was Daniel Joseph MacArthur Seal. Many thanks to him for joining for episode number 151. If you've got a fancy for this subject, you'd probably also be interested in our episode with Malte Furman, published last May, painting a panorama of cultural and social life in the East Mediterranean port cities of Thessaloniki, Istanbul and Izmir in the late Ottoman period. A very good episode that was. I've added the link to it in the post for this episode on turkeybooktalk.com. Remember, if you enjoy Turkey Book Talk, you can support us by joining as a member on Patreon. Membership gets you that 35% discount on all Turkey Ottoman history books published by IB Taurus and Bloomsbury. Transcripts of every interview, transcripts of the entire archive of interviews, access to an archive of over 200 book reviews written by me, and links via email to articles and other content related to the subject of each episode. For all that, just go to Turkey Book Talk's Patreon account and pledge $3, €3 or £2.50 per episode. You can also support Turkey Book Talk by rating it on your podcast platform, follow via our website turkeybooktalk.com or via Twitter or via our Facebook page or at our new Instagram account or all of them. Recommend Turkey Book Talk to a friend or a foe and I always enjoy hearing from listeners so do send any feedback or abuse to williamjohnarmstrong at gmail.com. Finally, let me once again remind you to check out a friend of Turkey Book Talk, Turkey Recap. Turkey Recap is a weekly email newsletter that's put out by the journalist Diego Cupolo and a crack team. A package bringing together all major developments in Turkey over the past seven days, links to interesting articles and some excellent puns. Just go to turkeyrecap.com and follow the links there to subscribe. But until our next episode of Turkey Book Talk in a couple of weeks, thank you very much for listening. (music) 